April showers bring Mayflowers, but what do Mayflowers bring? A special offer from the DSR Network. For the month of May, become a member and receive 20% off a monthly or annual membership. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, exclusive bonus content, our evening members-only newsletter, and an invitation to continue the conversation via our members-only Slack community. This offer won't last, so act now. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., coming to us today from, I'm guessing, Austin, Texas. Maybe I could be right. We have Steve Vladek of the University of Texas Law School, who is author of a new book coming out any minute now, The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. Indeed, some people could be hearing this even after the book has come out, because it's just coming out in the next few days. Are you tingling with excitement? Uh, tingling with something, uh, anticipation, <laughs> nerves, um, just, you know, hoping that people actually read it. But it's it's a real treat to be with you, David. Well, it's a real treat to have you here. I, I must say, you know, this sub- subject is absolutely fascinating and sort of undercovered and not well understood. Um, you know, recently, there's been a lot of talk about how the court is kind of behind on its usual schedule of decisions. Um, and uh, I'm just wondering how these things play together because they, you know, the shadow docket has expanded. They do things in the shadow docket throughout the year. Uh, the traditional docket has been affected. Are the are the fundamental operations of the court being altered in material ways that you think? I, I think so. I mean, but you know, one of the goals of the book, David, is to actually try to persuade folks that we ought to, in general have a more holistic conversation about the court when we talk about the court. You know, the we, we tend to f- focus on the court by reacting to headlines. So the latest headline about Justice Thomas's financial conduct, right, or the latest big ruling in a case like Dobbs. And, you know, I think that misses um, the lion's share of what the Supreme Court actually does. And I think the more that we take a holistic assessment of the court as an institution, Frankly, I actually think the more troubling the assessment becomes, um, and I think also the less obviously partisan the assessment becomes, because it's no longer just about who the justices are and what they're doing. It's about how the court as an institution is acting. So I think these are all of a piece, and I think they all spring from really the same underlying disease, um, which is a court that really has stopped being checked by Congress the way it really was for most of its first 200 years of existence. Yeah, well, it's 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 incredibly important and timely. I know that uh, the day we're recording this, on the morning of the day, you appeared on the Daily Beans, a great podcast, which is 
hosted by Allison Gill, who has just joined us. Um, uh, Allison is the uh, head of a podcast empire, The Daily Beans, Jack, uh, Muller. She, I mean, there's just so much that you've you've been doing. Um, how did you find time to squeeze Steve in? <laughs> it was my honor and pleasure. I've been planning that for a really long time. That book is, uh, this book is prescient. It's important. Uh, and I, I couldn't wait to talk to him about, about all of the different aspects of the shadow docket and what's going on with the Supreme Court today and, and how we can, you know, work toward, toward fixing it and, and maybe ticking up the, uh, approval or at least the, the trust in the Supreme Court, uh, maybe at least a notch or two. Well, that's your sunny optimism showing through there, Allison, as usual, uh, because we're not going to fix it, are we, Steve? Nothing's going to change. It's just going to get worse. I don't know. I'm I'm a little less uh, sanguine about about the the sort of the, the prospects here, uh, David. I, I think we're not going to accomplish revolutionary change overnight. But I actually think the mere fact that you know the three of us are sitting here having this conversation, um, and that you know my, my mom and four other people might even be listening to it. Uh, right is is a pretty good sign that we're paying attention to the institutions and not just the people. Um, and you know, I think we can look at some of the Supreme Court's behavior actually this year um, and see evidence that maybe the justices actually are at least somewhat responsive to criticism and to public pressure. Um, which, if anything, I just think only further accelerates the the argument for an informed and fired up and educated and pushing back electorate. Well, I do, I do want to say hi to your mom and thank her for joining us for for this uh, uh, episode. Uh, AG, I noticed today that Crew called for Clarence Thomas to step down. Um, now, uh, I, you know, a lot of people have done that recently, but they're pretty respectable, thoughtful organization. Do you think it'll have any effect at all? Well, I think... Everything that we do has at least a little bit of an effect. Uh, and I think that the way, you know, you had mentioned, Steve, you know, we're not going to see revolutionary change overnight. And and that is a product of democracy, the way that our system is set up. And I think that um, the people who would oppose and try to drive us to the far right or have autocratic intentions where, you know, autocracy is afoot, as, as Maddow would say, uh, want us to hate the slowness of the process of democracy so that we opt for autocracies. Uh, I, it, you know, it's been brought up time and again by the president, uh, President Biden. He brought it up in his first 100 days joint uh, address to Congress. He, he brings it up at the State of the Union that democracy does work. And he brings up examples of, of where it does, like the infrastructure bill, which we finally uh, got done. I mean, we got at least 10 Republicans to agree to spend $2 trillion. That's never happened in the history of my, you know, at least my little modern uh, lifetime here paying attention to politics. Uh, but we have to kind of understand and defend institutions that these things are incremental. And it's things like organizations like the Citizens for Responsibility of Ethics in Washington making these calls and calling for these things uh, that that help push things along, even though we know it's not going to get done. For example, um, subpoenaing, trying to maybe subpoena uh, some of the justices or Harlan Crow to come in and answer some questions, uh, or even 
thinking about impeachment, uh, if we find crimes, uh, potential, you know, legal liability from any of the justices, and, you know, we can name names that may have uh, some financial issues in their past and, and present, those kinds of things that can't, we know they can't be done right this second, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't start thinking about it or pushing for it because, you know, it's the whole, you know, shoot for the moon. If you miss, you'll end up among the stars or something along those lines. And that's how we got Obamacare. That's how we, that's how we move things forward incrementally in this system that is designed to move slowly. That's just my two cents. Again, it's, it's more of that sunny optimism. Uh, Steve, uh, with regard to this, I've spoken to people close to the court, know the court well, and they say, ethical standards, who's going to enforce it? You know, new new regulations, who's going to tell us what to do? Well, and, and I think that the, it's, it's a tricky question, David, but it's not an insurmountable one. I mean, so there's a bill that was introduced by Maine Senator Angus King by Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski um, that actually, I think, strikes the balance pretty well. The, the basic gist of the King-Murkowski bill is to say, hey, Supreme Court, we are requiring you to do two things. We are requiring you to formally and publicly adopt a set of ethics rules that you can pen, that you can write, but that you have to tell us you are adopting. Um, and you have to create a mechanism. You have to appoint somebody who is going to oversee compliance by the justices, by everyone else who works for the court with the rules you have chosen to adopt. And that person is not just going to report to you, the court, they're going to also file reports with us, the Congress, so that if there really are patterns of bad behavior by individual justices, we can consider whether we should use our impeachment power uh, in a particular case. And, you know, David, folks can debate the policy wisdom of that approach. I think for many, that wouldn't be nearly enough. But I'm hard pressed to see how that's unconstitutional to say, hey, Supreme Court, you know, you are we're giving you the power to pick the rules and to pick the person who's going to enforce them. We just want you to have an objective process that you then have to share with us. Um, I think Congress could go further than that without running afoul of the Constitution. But this seems to be low hanging fruit. What I find so jarring about the moment we're in about the discourse surrounding these ethics um, you know, stories is how many of the conservative justices defenders resist even the premise that you know the court ought to be accountable? Uh, one thing to say, I don't think Justice Thomas broke any of the rules. Fine, we can fight about that. Something else entirely to say, I think it should be up to Justice Thomas in perpetuity to decide whether he broke the rules. Uh, you know, to borrow the old Russian proverb that Ronald Reagan kind of butchered, right? Trust but verify. And it's it, it's interesting. You know, and a sort of slight step away from this particular part of the discussion. Do you mind if I ask, Steve, just one really quick question about oversight mechanisms? Not a, no, no, not at all. Because no. I had read that, you know, there's a the oversight mechanism for making a criminal referral to the Department of Justice for a Supreme Court justice is something called the Judicial Conference. And the Judicial Conference is made up of, I believe, the chief judges of the circuits in the country, plus two other uh, judges. And I can't remember specifically which judges they are, but like 92% of these judges were appointed by G.W. Bush. And I don't, and, and frankly, if you're living time in a linear fashion, as we all do, at some point that will swing to more liberal 
uh, judges, but it seems like it goes based on chunks of time because they are the chief judges of the circuits. And I, I feel like that's a pretty crappy oversight mechanism. And I was wondering if the bill that uh, the King Murkowski bill or anything else that's happening might address that particular situation. Not that we get tons of the necessity for criminal referrals of justices, but I feel like there should be a better oversight mechanism than chief justices of the circuits. Yeah. I mean, I think this is where I think the separation of powers questions get sticky, AG, right? Because, you know, once you give even Republican appointed circuit judges the power to basically um, review and stand in judgment of Supreme Court justices, you're making the Supreme Court not supreme. Um, and I think that's that's historically the, the constitutional argument. This is why I think the Murkowski-King bill is, is, to me, both a normatively and a constitutionally better approach. Um, because no one disputes that the Supreme Court can police. It's like, you know, that it would be constitutional for the court to police itself. What's missing is someone who's there to actually look at each of these episodes and write a formal report that says, yes, Justice Thomas should have disclosed this. No, Justice Thomas didn't have to disclose that. And then that report goes to Congress. And, you know, historically, the mechanism for reining in individual justices who were getting so far to line was either impeachment or the threat thereof. Um, we're nowhere near that, of course, given our current political dynamic. But I think the notion that there should be a two-way street of communication and a two-way street of reporting and oversight um, is something we've gotten out of uh, familiarity with, not because it's unconstitutional, but just because it's not something Congress has done much in the last 35 years. It's interesting, and it was a good question, um, Allison. Uh, uh, A.G., as far as the implications of this go, it was interesting to me. I was talking to some people this morning about Donald Trump's town hall of Palooza, you know, this thing on CNN that, that, that happened the other night. And some people were saying, well, you know, Trump could win because he's this and Biden's that and so forth. And I said, well, the last round of the elections were decided heavily around a certain big kind of rights and constitutional issues more than they were around personalities. Uh, and that, you know, we, we may be numb to both Biden and, and, and Trump, but we don't seem to be numb to the Dobbs decision. We don't seem to be numb to the consequences um, of uh, the the Second Amendment decisions that have been made, um, and that it could well be that in this coming election, it's the consequences of the radicalization of the court that tip the scale more than even the individuals involved. What do you think, Ag? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it's the old "the dog caught the car" situation, right? I mean, for decades, the Republicans were running on overturning Roe, and then they got. They got their wish, uh, and all of a sudden, nobody, you know, they've been given memos. We've seen these memos for campaigns like, don't talk about Roe, pivot to the border. Don't talk about Roe, pivot to this. Don't talk about gun violence, pivot to, you know, all these things that you're talking about, voting rights, these um, issues that impact democracy that we saw prevent the red wave we were all expecting in 2022. And, you know, I I, I truly I believe that these decisions will continue to haunt them in elections. And it's, it is, I think, a combination of, of things that are coming down from this court 
that has moved to the right uh, and has amassed power, as as Steve Vladek's book discusses in in great detail. Uh, it's it's also got to do with a, you know people voting against Trumpism, but you don't want to run that kind of campaign because we saw what happened with Yunkin. So I think we're walking a fine line, but I I also believe that uh, the president did the right thing by running on democracy and rights and, you know, our right to live, our right to not get shot at a movie theater, our right to uh, abortion care, our right to make those decisions for ourselves. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm with you uh, on that in, in that I think that those are the things that are going to decide um, our elections for, for right now. I can see it at least into the near future. You know, it's interesting, Steve, because, you know, we talk about shadow docket. We also talk about the shadowy goings out on around the court, which have led to some of this um, controversy, which would probably, you know, go on with less comment if the court were less central. But right now, the court is, you know, front and center in the minds of everybody in a way that it hasn't been in a long time, possibly because, you know, the dog caught the car. But what, what do you think? I think that's a big part of it. And and it's actually, I mean, chapter one of the book, not to not to give away too much, is basically how shifts in the court's power to decide what cases it takes. Um, David allowed the court to do this, right? Allowed the allowed the dog to catch the car. Um, where it's a confluence of two things. It's the fact that the justices can sit back and not just handpick which cases they hear, but even which questions they decide in the cases they hear, so that they can be very strategic about their docket. But also, and this is where I think, you know, the resignation of Justice Kennedy is a huge part of the story. You know, say what you will about Anthony Kennedy. Um, I don't think anyone would call him a moderate, but he was a moderating influence on the court. Speed breaks, if you will, right, for both the more liberal sensibilities of the Democratic appointees and I think the more reactionary sensibilities of the conservative appointees. And I think what we're seeing since 2018, David, is what happens when there's no speed break. Um, and when there's no speed break combined with how much power Congress has ceded and the court has claimed, so that if there's a big question of American policy, it quickly turns into a question of the Supreme Court. Look at the student loan cases, right? Look at the Mifepristone litigation. Um, you know, look at Title 42. I mean, every major contentious policy dispute in American discourse today is either you know, heading to the Supreme Court with a bullet or on its way there eventually. And that's not inevitable, but it is the result of a series of choices that Congress and the court has made over time that we ought to think about and talk about more when we talk about the court. Yeah, well, I think there's an impulse out there, particularly on the part of the right, that whatever we want, if we can push it to the court, we'll get what we want. And it hasn't always worked out for Trump. But it's worked out for a lot of their primary initiatives, whether it's abortion or or voting rights or gun rights or campaign finance. And, and David, and, and even when, I mean, so take the Mifepristone case, right? Even when they're losing, right? Even when it gets to the court and they don't actually get what they want, um, two things have happened, right? One, um, you've moved the Overton window on the entire conversation. Because it's not like the court is saying, actually, you shouldn't have brought this case in the first place, right? No, no one is no one is questioning the, the sort of the litigation behavior that is getting all these fire drills to the court. 
But two, then the 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 you know the right wing turns around and holds out those decisions as proof that the court is not um, just a, a font of right wing political power. Because if it was, it would of course be doing their bidding more completely, right? So it's sort of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Where again, if we just focus on the bottom lines, we're missing the broader institutional history and structure of the story. This is the point in the podcast where I generally say thanks to everybody in the public for listening. And if you want to listen to a whole podcast, you got to be a member. And so go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership. Uh, it's five bucks a month. It helps us do great podcasts like this and all the other ones you listen to um, uh, on the feed. And which over the course of the past six or so years we, that we've been doing this has grown from one podcast a week to something like 14 podcasts a week. Uh, so um, uh, it's certainly a lot of bang for your buck. We hope you'll do it. Uh, but for those of you who are in the general public, thanks very much. And for all of you who are our much-valued listeners uh, and members, please stand by. <laughs>